Our scripture is very short this morning. It's one verse. Genesis 127. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. When you think about the image of God in people, who do you see? Father God, we pray this morning and ask that you will continue to guide us as we serve you, as we seek to know you better, as some who are watching this morning online or even in the room here today are asking important questions and trying to find you and figure out how to follow you. I pray that you will continue to answer our questions as we search the scriptures and as we honestly try to answer the questions that come to our minds whenever we open the pages of your word. Thank you for everybody who's here who's a part of the North River Fellowship. And for those friends and family members and neighbors who, who stop in from time to time to check out what's going on here. We pray that you would continue to grant us wisdom and insight and knowledge about how to live our lives well, but also how to live our lives in, in sync with your truth and your self-revelation. We pray that you would give us confidence that we can know you, that we can have peace with the very God who created the universe. And we also ask that you would give us greater understanding into how to process the words of Jesus, how to let them deep inside our souls, how to live out his wisdom, and to find joy in life. I pray that you would guide us this morning as we open your word, give us understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you've noticed this, but it is common for people in every generation to think that the times that we live in have become tougher or more challenging than it was for the generation that came before us. We may be tempted to think that way again today. A more accurate appraisal may be that our time, though, is mixed. Think of it. We have many privileges that previous generations never were able to enjoy in life. Technology, flow of information, ease of travel. Yet some challenges seem more acute in our day, too. The conversation that seems to be most challenging and most controversial today centers on sex and gender. Perhaps it should not surprise us that the Bible offered some foundational thoughts about sex and gender as early as Genesis chapter 1, in other words, the very first chapter of the Bible. Rather than take the easy way out, our topic this morning is Gender Matters. This is part seven of our series on the genius of Genesis, and each Sunday for the last six weeks, now seven today, we've been mining out bedrock principles that help us understand God, our world, and our place in it. And I want to add that the North River Congregation has been very engaging over the past six weeks as we have slowly picked our way through Genesis chapter 1. The questions and the comments and the side conversations that you've brought me into have been fascinating. If there are questions that rise from this morning's message, I want you to know that our pastoral staff and I are happy to talk with you at some point uh, after this morning. While we are talking about gender, we, want, we, we are not going to cover some hot-button news items that you might have been thinking about if you heard me talk about where we were going this Sunday. For instance, we're not going to talk about locker room controversies. We're not going to talk about people with uh, male biological roots competing against females. Uh, we're not going to talk about what kind of marriage God's word affirms. All that is too much for this one message 
so that we get out of here at a reasonable time. However, we are going to clarify missional goals and clarify misunderstood terms, and I'm going to start doing that right now. North River's mission statement is very clear. Here's our mission statement. Helping people who are far from God become fully developed worshipers and servants of Christ. Essentially, North River's mission is about reaching more people, accepting them where they start, and moving them deeper into the process of complete spiritual transformation that is brought about by God. Our vision statement comes alongside of that. Our vision statement is people being forever changed by God's love and daily changing the South Shore and beyond for Jesus. So North River's vision is to become a community that is constantly being changed by God's love. That means you and me, every person who's watching this, that we are all in process of being changed by God and also a community that leads others into the life-transforming power of God wherever we go as far as we can reach. The question that I want to raise this morning that is behind this particular message is this. Why has the concept of gender become so confusing and controversial in our day? So we're going to talk about gender matters. I'm going to do that in two parts. Part one is a walk through some highlights of Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. And then in part two, we're going to talk about uh, gender itself. So let me walk you through this. Genesis 1 reveals how God created humans in his own image. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, if we shorten 26 just for time's sake, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Verse 27 comes on the heels of that. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Last Sunday, in part six of this series, we unpacked the meaning of the image of God, that God created the first human beings, both male and female, and the poetic arrangement of verse 27 points out that they were equally created in God's image. Each one reflects, reveals, and represents God. Each one is endowed with dignity by God. This is true for every single human being on the face of this earth, whether they believe in God or not, whether they revere the name of God or not, whether they ever enter a church or not. And every single human being shares a capacity for relating to God, whether we choose to or not. So, when God stepped back to observe all that he created, which is recorded in Genesis 1, it is only at this point, after creating both male and female, that God announces for the first time, this is very good. Five times earlier, God had looked at parts of his creation and said, this is good. But now when he's created the first human beings and he's looking back at everything, including including human life on this planet, he says, this is very good. And we move to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2 reveals God's intention for expansion and intimacy. In Genesis 2, 22 and 23, we read these words, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Genesis 2 takes a close-up look at the creation of the first man and the first woman. God creates Adam from dust, breathes life into him, and later creates Eve from a part of Adam's side. There's an interpretive uh, decision there that the older versions of the Bible all use this concept of a rib, but the Hebrew word that's there usually means that he took some part of his side. We don't know what part that he created him from, 
Could have been a rib, could have been something more. Fitting their mission, Adam and Eve are then given the imperative to be fruitful and multiply. So the word expansion that I use is not that we get larger and larger, but rather that we spread out and we fill the earth with more and more people. That was part of God's intention. There would be as many people as there are today and maybe even more. Genesis 2 also reveals the joy and intimacy of that very first couple. So Adam has never seen a woman before. He's fallen into this deep sleep. God has done his miraculous creation work. And as Adam wakes up, he sees Eve for the first time. And he responds with the first humanly crafted poetry. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Adam, in effect, is saying, wow, God, she moves me down to my bones. She's unlike anything else in all of creation. That section concludes by telling us something very important, that they were naked and they had no shame. This is the Bible's way of saying that there was no hiding between them, that they had a complete and profound intimacy. Yes, sex was involved in all that, but there was something even more I would define intimacy as having the kind of relationship that is so safe that there is complete openness, no hiding, no shading of the truth, absolute transparency and honesty between two human beings. The Genesis way of saying that is they were naked and had no shame. So we find that we are not only relational beings, but we were designed with the capacity for intimacy, intimacy with God and intimacy with others. And then Genesis 3 comes along, and in Genesis 3 we discover that we are all broken in some way, at least. In verses 4 and 5 of Genesis 3, there's this conversation that goes on between the serpent, who is representing the evil one or the tempter, and he says to Eve, you will certainly not die, for God knows that when you eat from it, this is the forbidden fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Historians refer to the entry of sin into the conversation as the fall, meaning the fall of mankind, the fall from a sinless state. The first move away from God comes from a combination of pride and the desire for a shortcut. Okay, we'll deal with the shortcut first. Eve succumbs to the evil one's false promise. He says to her, you will be like God if you eat this forbidden fruit. What Eve didn't realize was that they would only be like God in one small way, one significant way. They would know good and evil. Up to this point, they had only known, had only seen, had only experienced good. And now they would be exposed to evil as it began to invade their world as well. What Eve and Adam didn't realize was that being like God was always part of God's finer plan but to be done in his way. Romans 8:29 informs us about this. In the New Testament, it says that God's plan is for people to be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, we would be like Jesus, the very son of God, when God is finally through with his transforming work inside each of us. But Eve was being offered a shortcut, and it sounded good, and she and Adam took that shortcut. The second factor was pride. The idea that we can reject God and make up our own rules. Adam and Eve did it first, and then every one of us followed suit. We attempt to make up our own rules and play God. Tim Keller defines 
pride as the sin that is behind every sin. It's the one sin that keeps us from God. Until we surrender to God and find new life in Jesus, and even then we still battle pride along the way. So the question comes, how was the sexual romantic aspect of Adam and Eve's lives impacted by the fall? Genesis 3 answers that for us. The cycle of blame and shame started right there in the Garden of Eden. Lies and cover-ups enter their relationship with God and with each other. Their bodies become the cause of shame for the first time. God asks Adam, why are you hiding? He says, because I was naked. It's the first time Adam feels this kind of shame. There's something that has, has transpired and gone on through that act of that first rebellion. The intimacy that they knew in Genesis chapter 2 all of a sudden becomes harder to find and harder to keep. God expresses it this way to Eve. He says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That does not mean that in God's view of the world, men rule and women follow and always lose. It's not saying that. But rather, the intimacy that we talked about in chapter 2 becomes more elusive. And there's this push and pull that goes on between the sexes, even beyond uh, between husband and wife, where, where one or the other at different times tries to grab a hold of the, the lead role and to say, it's going to go my way this time. And we have this push and pull that goes back and forth as selfishness enters all of us and into our relationships too. Childbearing would become more difficult. And so the people who had been declared to be very good in the sight of God, with whom sex was a wonderful gift, now saw that everything was tainted by one act of prideful rebellion against God. The enduring result of all of this is that we are in all some way sexually broken. You may never have thought it that way. How might that be? Just just think of a few of the examples. Some of us who are in this room or who are watching online today have been taken advantage of or sexually abused. Some of us have willfully entered into actions that long ago caused shame. Some have seen things that took away your sense of innocence far too soon. Some have felt dirty because of someone else's lingering look or comment or unwanted touch that you never invited and never anticipated. Some have become addicted to some form of porn or images that begin to control how you think. Some have become addicted to verbal porn that's wrapped up in raunchy novels that become just as addicting, a false romance. Some have been harmed by a combination of violence and sex or by a combination of sex and illegal drugs. Some have engaged in sexual relationships that they know that God does not condone. We are easily manipulated by ads using a sexy man or a sexy woman aimed to get us to buy whatever it is they want us to sell. And too often we do. Some live every single day with fears, bad memories, or even nightmares because of some sex-related hurt. I dare say that we are all in some way sexually broken. And all this affects how we think about and how we talk about gender and sex today. So here's the big idea that I want to get across this morning. I want you to think about Genesis 1 and all we've been learning 
up through this week, but also what we just added in about Genesis chapter 3 where the fall happens. We are Genesis 1 people living in a Genesis 3 world where all are fallen, yet no one is beyond the reach of God's love and transforming power. I have to unpack that a little bit for you as we go along. So part two of this message is we're going to talk about some gender issues today. We're doing this so that we are better equipped and that you can think about how to engage in conversations with other people about this. Here's, part, here's my first suggestion. View the image of God in humankind as our starting point for having any kind of conversation about this. Last Sunday in part six of this series, we unpacked the meaning of the image of God. Theologians use the term the imago Dei when they talk about the image of God. It sounds really fancy, but it's the same thing. It's the words image of God in Latin, and it just seems more profound if we change the language, doesn't it? The point is that human beings reflect God more than anything else in all of creation. There are several attributes and characteristics that human beings share with God that we went through as a long list last Sunday. But every human being is endowed with dignity. We are given glory and honor by God, created just a little bit lower than the angels, the Word says. And we are capable of and designed for a relationship with God. All of these notions are true, whether people believe in God or follow God or not. Because of the imago Dei, the image of God in us, we therefore must treat all human beings with great dignity. This is the foundational bedrock for defending and honoring all human life. We defend and honor all ethnicities, and we recognize that we are, we are equal, valued, and all loved in the eyes of God. We specifically defend and honor and include women because Genesis 1.27 goes out of its way to, to make sure that we don't look at the image of God as a male-only thing, but male and female he created them. The implication is in the image of God. And when we address the social issues of our day, we start by affirming the image of God in everyone. This includes the way that we regard, love, and treat LGBTQ plus people. This is especially important when talking with those who are maligned or marginalized. So there's no room for mockery or humor at the expense of those that we hope to reach with the gospel of Jesus. We need to work to understand terminology, and we must avoid using the Bible as a club that can beat people with our Bible truth. I like the way that my friend Bill Henson has said this. Bill's the, the founder of Posture Shift Ministries that I work with on the side. He said, a gospel of rejection has no power to reach already marginalized people. So we view the image of God as our starting point, as our bridge, that, that we're all equal in His sight, that we're all capable of knowing God, that He wants us to know Him. We're all capable of having intimacy with God. Second, realize that we live in a Genesis 3 world. You might have been wondering what I meant by that in this big idea. We're Genesis 1 people living in a Genesis 3 world. In chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 23 talks about Adam as the result of their rebellion against God. And one part of that says, so the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden. Everything, including the simplicity of being created male and female, is impacted by the repercussions of the fall. 
We're going to define some terms that are important to this conversation. But keep in mind our mission and our vision goals. We are in the business of reaching as many people as possible with the gospel of Jesus Christ, regardless of background or identity, because we want them all to know the life-changing love of God through a relationship with Jesus. A moment ago, we, we sang about the joy of this. Uh, the, the chorus of one of the songs said, there's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. And the refrain of that song says, I am who I am because the I am tells me who I am. The I am is God. That's the, the name that he gave to Moses. I am who I am. In other words, God is the reason for so much of life. How do we understand the, genera- the Genesis 1 declaration that God created them male and female in a Genesis 3 world where everyone is fallen? Some people approach this and think God tell, uh, Genesis tells us that God created male and female. So, your sex is your gender and your gender is your sex. Here's the problem. When we do that, we are not listening to the people around us who are experiencing something different and we are not taking Genesis 3 into account. You and I don't live in a Genesis 1 world. We live in the world that is impacted by the fall And our world is not perfect, and our lives are not perfect. Having meaningful conversations around this issue demands deeper thinking because there are people who believe that their biological sex does not match their gender identity, and their experience says something different from what most of us have known all through our lives. So we need to define terms because Christians like us are in danger of using Genesis 1 definitions in a way that harm people who live in a Genesis 3 world. Let me just unpack three terms for you. I actually started with a longer list and realized I'm going to bore them to death and this is going to take too long. But we cut it down to three. So, one, biological sex. This is the sex you were born with that flows from your chromosomes, regardless of who you are and how you see yourself. Gender identity is another current way that people used to describe how they see themselves, but especially when when biological sex and gender perception do not align. So often in the conversation today, people separate their biological sex, which is who you are at your chromosomal makeup and the way that you're born, from the way that people perceive themselves, which becomes their gender identity. The third term is gender dysphoria. It's a clinical term, and it speaks of clinically significant distress when there is not an alignment between biological sex and the way that people perceive themselves. This distress can be mild, it can be severe, or somewhere in between, and for many people this distress is real and can be life-threatening. All this calls for compassion, not judgment from the Christian community, that we try to understand what people are talking about in our world when they say that their biological sex and their gender identity do not align and that they think that there's somebody else trapped in the wrong body. Third, we can learn to think like missionaries. Paul wrote this, the Apostle Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means 
I might save some. Part of our challenge is to build bridges through love and understanding. That's what Paul was teaching us. And so, when some people were strong, he became like the strong. When some people were weak, he became like the weak. In other words, he found common ground. And through that common ground, identified with all kinds of different people in order to be able to bring the gospel to them. We can build bridges through love and understanding. We need to use language that does not unnecessarily offend, which means sometimes we have to understand the terminology of our day, even if you disagree with it. And we keep the mission in mind. Essentially, North River's mission is about reaching more people, accepting them where they start, and moving them deeper into the process of complete, radical spiritual transformation by God. That's what he does inside of every single one of us. And God's goal has been codified, as I mentioned earlier in Romans 8.29. That verse in full form says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So that means what God is doing when we introduce people to Christ and, and Jesus gets involved in their lives is he is actually conforming each of us. He doesn't take any of us and accept us the way we are forever and keep us the way we are forever. He is little by little, process by process, at work in conforming us to the image of God. I love that image. It's the idea that God's plans for us are extremely high. He doesn't want to just sprinkle a little bit of Christian dust on us and make us just a little bit Christianized. He wants to radically thoroughly transform me and you and everybody who's listening to this message. And the very thing that draws you to Jesus Christ is what God longs to impart into our hearts, into our character, into our mindsets. That's why the Bible says in another place that when we see him, we will be like him. That's the day that that God finishes the work in all of us. And until that time, he's working on all of us. So we build bridges, we use language that doesn't unnecessarily offend, we keep the mission in mind, and we develop a posture of humility and listening. One of the challenges is that evangelical Christians like me have become known for leading with our position statements. If we lead with this, we often put up barriers before we ever have a chance to get to know the person on the other side of the conversation. A missionary actually does something very different. A missionary mindset humbly listens, observes, tries to learn about the culture that somebody is in, studies that culture, and takes a position of humility. This involves shifting our posture, not necessarily our beliefs or our theology. The posture shift idea comes from that ministry posture shift that I'm involved with, and Uh, Back in April, when Bill Henson was here and we had a a two-day conference here at North River, the largest thing that I learned that was new for me was the reference of one particular mantra that I'm going to ask you to repeat with me. Posture, position, posture. Can you say that with me? Posture, position, posture. What does that mean? We take the posture of being humble about the way that we go about our faith and curious about people and getting to know them. We earn the right to say, here's what I believe and why. And then after saying that, we back that up with more posture. Now, the idea behind that is 
We don't have to give up our theology about what we believe, but we do have to change our posture because the Christian community has often had a posture of saying, we know the truth and we know the right way. Let us tell you that in a way that plows over people and steamrolls them. And it doesn't work in today's world. Changing our posture while we still hold on to our truth changes the conversation. Why are we doing this? Every pastor that I know today is confronted with questions about sexual issues that pastors never used to deal with. I was in a conference in Dallas Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and it was interesting. There was a panel at the end of the at the end of the uh, final session, and these three very well-known pastors of some of the largest churches in America, and a bunch of questions that rolled out that people had texted into them, and it was amazing how many of them dealt with the same issues that we're dealing with here this morning. What are the questions? When my child comes out, will my church be a safe place where I can find help? When someone I care about is struggling with questions about sexual identity, will my church be a place that prepares me for better conversations? And more and more like this. About a year ago, one of the older, wiser men in my life made a comment to me that really got to my heart in a very deep way. He said that he has has two gay grandsons, And despite all the years that he's been involved in Christian leadership here in New England, he said, I can't think of a single evangelical church in New England that would be a safe place for him to send his grandsons so that they could hear about God's gospel of grace. And I heard that and my heart broke. And I have a conviction, a conviction I've shared with our overseers, with our staff, I'm sharing it with you here today. My conviction is that North River needs to be one of those safe places that rightly balance grace and truth. My hope is that we will continue to create that kind of culture together. But it takes all of us to dare to believe that we can wrestle with God's truth and we can do it in such a grace-filled manner that we can learn to love people who may choose to disagree with what the issues are or how we talk about them but they will see the love of God in us even when we disagree. So, here's that big idea. We are Genesis 1 people, meaning we live in a world that God has created and pronounced to be good, and we want to find that goodness. Living in a Genesis 3 world where all of us are fallen, All of us are broken in some way, yet absolutely no one we ever meet is beyond the reach of God's love and transforming power. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this congregation, and I thank you for your word. There's so much there that points us in the direction of knowing you and how to serve you well how to know your truth and how to live it out even in the midst of a very confusing age and culture. Lord, make us wiser. Make us more and more curious about people and more and more curious about your word. Give us the posture of humility rather than arrogance. And give us a confidence that your gospel is life-transforming for everyone and that you are willing to get into the messiness of our lives in order to meet us where we start.
Give us that great conviction and that great compassion together. In Jesus' name, amen.